Morning, church. Good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of John, Gospel of John. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful and grateful for all you have done for us, for the many, many blessings that we have in this life, in this place, freedom, finance, relative health, safety, so many things that we can be thankful for, Lord, but most of all, above all else, we're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, who gave us the experience of you, that we might know you. Lord, it's in his precious name that we do pray. Like I said, turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 again. Um, We'll be looking at at the first 18 verses, which is what we call the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
no one has ever seen the have no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Again, Spirit of God, we ask that you teach us. Teach us from this from this book, from these words, so that we might know more fully our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name. Amen. So we've been going through this like I mentioned, prologue to John's Gospel the last couple weeks as we've been traveling through the Advent season. And I've mentioned both previous weeks that all four Gospels have what we would call an Advent story. A story of the arrival of the notable character, Jesus Christ. Matthew and Luke, they... they introduce us to Jesus uh, as he's born. John is a little bit different. John's focus through his gospel is is Jesus' speeches, his his sermons rather, and, and his deity. And so John takes a little bit different approach and shows us this really quite beautiful uh, poetic account in the Greek. It's not nearly as poetic in, in English, but And we're introduced to, in the first couple verses, who we call the Word. I mentioned in that first in that first week of Advent that the Word is the second person of the Trinity, uh, maybe maybe better understood as the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, the expression of who God is on the earth. But we learned a couple things about this notable character. We learned first that he's he's preexistent. The word is pre-existent. In the beginning was the word. Before time began, God, uh, God the word, God the Son existed. We learn also that the word was with God. The word is in relationship with the Father. Not in need of our relationship with Him, but perfectly in relationship with the Father. We learn not only is He, is he in relationship with the Father, but He is... God Himself. In this pre-existent, perfect relationship with the Father, God Himself is the creator of the universe. All things came into existence because of Him. Last week we saw how John shifted from using, using the picture of the Word to the picture of light. John says that in Him was Life and, and life is very much like light. Light being an analogy that John is going to use. Life acts very much like light acts when it interacts with the darkness. It, it overcomes it. It wins in the end. Light will always win. As life, in particular the life that is given to us from God, will always win. John tells us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is no, not overcome. Even though when, when Christ enters into the world and, and, and steps into the very thing that he created, the thing that he created doesn't recognize him. And, and those who, who 
hear him say, I am the light, I am the creator, not only do we not recognize him immediately, but we reject him whenever we hear who he is. But Christ doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave us abandoned in our in our unrecognition. He shows himself to us. He expresses himself to us. And those of us who would believe in him, would receive him and believe in his name and, and, and what he has done, he gives the right to become children of God. Which I think is pretty special. Then John is going to shift sort of once again. I think he's going to repeat himself a little bit here, but what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at this maybe in three different phases. We're going to look at all this whole verses 14 to 18 in three different phases. Because I think there are three things that we need to we need to learn in order to understand what John is trying to teach us. The first is that we encounter uh, we encounter this this other John in two rather unusual places. Verses 1 to 18 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, the prologue, as I've said a couple times, is, is really a beautiful piece of literature. It's a beautiful piece of literature, and it's all about Christ, except for four verses. Except for four verses. Verses 6 to 8, 6, 7, and 8, and then verse 15, we have what I would just call an interjection into the flow of the story, into the flow of what John, the gospel writer, is actually trying to teach us. He's teaching us about Jesus, and yet he gives us these two seemingly unnecessary interjections about John, a different John, by the way, and I, I mentioned this last week. And what's interesting about this interjection about this other John is that it's just John. It's not John the Baptist, who we know this John to be because of the other Gospels. So we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us, all call this guy John the Baptist. They give us his title, or his, his not his title, his maybe vocation. How we would see it, John was out in the wilderness, he was kind of an oddball, he had weird clothes, he ate weird things. And he was calling the people of Israel to repentance. To repentance. And, and the people of Israel ate it up for lack of a better way of saying it. They, they, John was a superstar. Everybody liked John. Almost everybody liked John, except for the religious leaders. But they all went out there, and John called them to repentance, and as a symbol of that repentance, he gave them baptism, like we have baptism, dunking in water and coming out of the water. So John, he preaches this, 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 this sermon of repentance and turning away from your from your legalistic approach to, to your God, turning away from your own self-righteousness and your own foolishness, and, and turn to the, the God who has redeemed you and saved you and been there for you even in the midst of your worst atrocities. And that baptism was a major part of that. And yet John, the gospel writer John, John the apostle John, who we believe is the writer of the gospel that we're reading, he very noticeably doesn't tell us about John's vocation or the thing that John is most well known for. 
And I said last week that I think the reason that is, is because John, the gospel writer, wants us to know very specifically or very purposefully that John's purpose was not to baptize, but to bear witness. Now that's what John is doing in his the process of baptism. He's preparing the way for the Lord. We'll talk about this more in depth next week when we see John a little bit more in depth. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's proclaiming the Lamb of God who we're putting our trust in in the baptism even before Jesus is, uh, is, has fulfilled his ministry. But John, the gospel writer, wants us to make sure that we don't misunderstand who John, the guy who baptizes, what his main role is. So he leaves this out. Very purposefully leaves this out. And so what are we to do with these two interjections of John? I think if we if we look at this, we take verses uh, 6, 7, and 8 out and take verse 15 out. Not that I'm suggesting that we should ignore them completely. But if we take them out, we can read the rest of uh, this prologue without any anything missing. I've suggested a couple times in the last couple weeks that one one uh, good question to ask as you're reading and studying the Bible, a good way to study the Bible is to read the passage and then go, what happens if I remove this passage from Scripture? Like, what do I lose? And that's probably the main point that you should be hearing, right? What do I lose if I take this out? What well, doesn't seem like much is being lost. So why is it here? I scratched my head a little bit and, I, and and eventually, I think I figured out that what John is doing with John is he's putting up these, these barriers along the side of the stream. John is, is he's taking us through this beautiful picture of who the Christ is, and he wants us to, to, to not miss the main point. There's a lot of little things that we could go off on, on tangents and rabbit trails on in the prologue. We could talk about all these different little pictures and, and and, and, and it would be nice. It would be wonderful. But, but I, I think that John is here to keep us from doing that, to keep our focus on what really matters. 6, 7, and 8, I think what John is doing is he's keeping our focus on, on this one thing. Verse 7, it says, He came as a witness. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light, Jesus, that all might believe through him, through Jesus. But believe in what? But believe that the light dispels darkness. Believe that the light is what brings us life. Believe that the word of God is the answer to the question, how are we going to make it? We could go on a tangent about Christ being the creator, but that's not the point. We could go on a tangent about about the different attributes of light and darkness, but that's not the point. The point is, is that Christ is the light. Christ is the light who we believe in, and because of this belief in the light, because of the belief in the name of Christ Jesus, we can become children of God. John is this, these bumpers maybe. You're bowling, you got the bumpers up because you're not a good bowler. But then this second one in verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried, 
and cried out, this is, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So what is the bumpers? What are the, the barriers that we should see in this? What is John trying to keep our focus on? Well, I think John is trying to keep our focus on the reality that Jesus is not an afterthought. There's there's a, a heretical belief in church history. It's not it's it's actually gaining traction today. Lost traction, gained traction, lost traction through church. Anyway, there's a heretical belief, a false belief that. That Jesus, the man Jesus, only becomes only becomes the Son of God at his baptism. So, so God has been searching through church history, or searching through through the history of mankind, and He finally finds this one guy who's who's better than the rest. Jesus is He's a good guy. Jesus is just a man. He's a good guy. He He fits the bill. He likes me. You know, God's up in heaven going, i got to find the right character. And now he, there he is. And so at his baptism, when the, the, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a, as a dove, that's when Jesus becomes Jesus becomes the Messiah. Jesus becomes the Son of God. This is false, but it's, just, it's not what we believe. John dispels this very, very clearly, I think. Jesus is not an afterthought. In fact, Jesus is from the beginning. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. It is important for us to recognize that the plan has always been to rescue you. The plan has always been to redeem you, to save you. Before God said, let there be light, He planned to save you. Before he said, let us make man in our image, he planned to save you. Before he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he planned to save you. So John is here as this barrier. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Christ was before me. The second thing that we learn as we kind of go around this, as we come back to the beginning, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father. And then we skip down a little bit to verse 18, and we, and we see something else that I think is similar, but says, no one has ever seen God, and in the ESV it says, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, we've got to talk about the Bible a little bit, about particularly different types of versions and, and things like that, just so we can understand what's going on here. This doesn't make any sense as it reads in the ESV. It, just, it seems very confusing. How can, how can not seeing God, and the only God is at the Father's side, it's, it's confusing. The reason why it's confusing is because the Bible, or the New Testament and the Old Testament, are not written originally in English. Okay, The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. There's some Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew. And the New Testament is written in Greek. 
And if you know anything about any other language, it's not a one-to-one, right? It's not just replace this this English word with the Greek word or vice versa. And it's, it's, it's complicated. Sentence structures are different, all this kind of stuff. And so we have different types of translations, different types of translations. One, which is what the ESV is, the English Standard Version, is what we call a literal translation, or the attempt, the theory in the translation was that we take the Greek word and as, as much as we can, as close as we can, we translate it word for word. Meaning if there's a word in Greek that means that means God, then we want to translate that here, God. Try to be as close as we can. Now, where that fails us as English readers who are reading our Bibles is when there's a figure of speech or there's an idiom. Something like in English, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Right? Does anybody in this room who is a primarily English-speaking person think that I would actually go out and eat a horse? No, don't raise your hands because I... Tom, you big... Right? We all know what that means because we're English-speaking people. We know the, the figure of speech. It just means I'm really hungry. Now, it's, it's that way because it's an unusual thing to say. You, you maybe wouldn't get it as much wouldn't make as much sense as ah, I'm so hungry I could go eat a cow. Well, I might go out and eat a cow. I'm not going to go out and eat a horse. I mean, there are cultures that eat horses, but but we don't, right? It's it's not what we do. So it's this unusual statement that's meant to represent for us or to to say something else, a figure of speech. And this happens in other languages also. And if we would translate that statement into Greek or to Spanish or to some other foreign language, they have no idea what's happening. That's why figures of speech are so hard for, for, for English as second language people. Like that doesn't make any sense. Why would you say that? Why would you eat a horse? It's gross. And so that's what happens in English when we translate from Greek. There's times when there's figures of speech or idioms or just strange sentence structures. That's what happens here. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now, the subject of the sentence, when he says the only God, is Jesus. So go to, go to verse 18 here. So, so this is out of what is the Christian Standard Bible, which is rapidly becoming one of my favorite versions. So if you don't have the Christian Standard Bible, it's a good, what we call uh, thought for thought translation or dynamic equivalent translation, which means that you're taking the idea, translating it woodenly, and then you're kind of making it make more sense. So you 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 lose some of the literalness of it, but you gain the figures of speech. And so the, the CSB translates it like this. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God. Who is himself God. So we see the only God that's the one and only Jesus, who is the Son, is the is the subject of the sentence, is being implied into it. And so here we have the one, the the no one has ever seen God, the one and only God, who is himself God. Now going back to our bumpers, what John is doing with John is trying to make sure that we don't misrepresent who the Son is in the Trinity. Like I said a couple weeks ago, the Trinity is a bigger topic, a bigger doctrine than, than just two or three minutes on a Sunday morning, which is the main point of the sermon. And 
And so you have to bear with me. I apologize whenever I misrepresent things. But when we talk about God the Father, we mean the, the beginning point, the origin of who God, the essence of who God is. When we talk about the Son, or when we talk about the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, we're talking about the expression of the essence of God into the world. Now, again, essence doesn't do it justice, so don't, don't take that too far, but the Son is the expression of God in, in the world. He's not, he's not just some expression. He is the perfect expression of God in the world because he himself is God. He's not some other thing, right? We Sometimes we think, oh, God in the Old Testament, that's the Father. The Father is God in the Old Testament, and he's mean, he's vindictive, he's wrathful, he's, he's just a big jerk. He's not nice, he's not kind, he's not gracious, And then Jesus comes along, this new guy comes along, this new God comes along. He's way better. It's just not how we should think. Because Christ is not some new thing that is, you know, God 2.0. He is the perfect representation of the Father. He's so much the perfect representation of the Father that as we look at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. We've seen the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Or verse 18, he has made him known. The Father, he has made the Father known because because Christ is exactly God. He's not a copy. He is. He's not a copy. He is. Again, why does this matter so much? Well, number one, a simple thing is that it guards us from misunderstanding what the Old Testament is really all about. We look at the Old Testament and it's really, it's really can be very easy to think that that God is mean and vindictive and, and, but that's not what we see in the Old Testament. If we think that's what we're going to see, that's what we're going to see. But if we know that God is the God of grace, and we look at the story, and we think about how Adam and Eve, they sin, and God said, you would surely die, and yet they don't. God mercifully lets them live, gives them a covering, gives them a sacrifice, gives them grace. And then through, through the history of the people of Israel, the people of Israel just, man, if you ever want to feel just a little bit better about yourself, read about Israel and how much they fail. Again and again and again. And then we go, well, but then doesn't God send Babylon? Yeah, he sends Babylon to bring the people back to himself. God is always after the people of Israel. This is what Romans 9 is about. That God is still after the people of Israel, even now. We don't want to misrepresent who God is by thinking Jesus is something new. He's not. He's exactly the Father. He's the Father expressed to us. He's the Father that we can experience. When we talked about the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of revelation, we talked about John 1, the first couple verses of John. And we talked about how how in Romans 1.20, Paul tells us that that, that God has painted himself into creation so much so that we can see him and we have no excuse not to know him. Meaning that as we look at at creation, as we look at the world around us, 
we can see enough of who God is to know Him. And yet God still, despite us missing Him in creation, still calls Abram and the people of Israel. So that as He calls Abram and the people of Israel, He can send prophets to speak about Himself to the people. He calls Moses and he takes him up on Mount Sinai and he he gives him the law and and the Ten Commandments and Leviticus and all these rules and regulations, not because he wants to oppress us, but because he wants to show us who he is. And yet we still miss it. And he doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us. Instead, he sends his son, his one and only son, God himself, into the world so that it's not just something that we've seen or heard, but something that we now can experience. We can now know fully what and who God actually is. Well, what is that? God is grace, brothers and sisters. God is grace. Verse 15 or 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, truth we get, right? We know truth because we know. Now, truth is becoming more and more relative in our culture. We're saying the truth is is whatever truth you want it to be, which is garbage. Truth is God's, God's alone. Grace, that's something different. That's something that we don't get. Because everything in our culture, everything in our culture, everything in our culture is monetary. There's a value to it. We put some kind of value to it. To our homes, my home has a value, my car has a value, my clothes have have value. Might be little, but my life has value. Missy and I have life insurance. There's a number on my my life, if I die, Missy's going to get a certain amount of money, which, which is what we say, that's how much Ryan's worth. It's way overpriced, way over. We do it with our children. children we, have, we have life insurance policies for our kids. We value our children, which is even more absurd. We value the things that we do to each other. Wes and Amy moved this week. I helped them move because the expectation is that they helped me move. And and in some later point, if we move again, they'll help me move. And we exchange our goods and services. It's really quite unheard of to to think about receiving something as as a gift. Even at Christmas when we're giving gifts to each other, there is, even if we we know that we're going to give more gifts than somebody else, there's still that expectation. I'm giving you a gift because you're going to give me a gift. Right? Can we all admit this? That we are so much an exchange culture that the idea of grace doesn't make sense. Grace is a gift given to us that we do not deserve, that we do not buy, and that we cannot repay. The blood of Jesus cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, and it cannot be repaid. And it is given to us. Not because Jesus is different, but because God is the God of grace. And and it gets even better, I think. Verse 16 says, From His fullness 
we have all received grace upon grace. You know what's interesting about the Greek word that we translate as upon in, in our literal translation? That's, that's kind of, it gets it, but only sort of. A, maybe a more literal translation would be grace instead of grace. But that doesn't make any sense, because how can you grace instead of grace? Grace is a gift that we cannot we, we cannot earn, we do not deserve, and we cannot buy. And it's lavished upon us, but I think that it's really hard for us to think that it won't run out. Have you ever been, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like you just went, Lord, when is it going to run out? You have forgiven me and forgiven me and forgiven me for the same ridiculous sinfulness, for my lust and for my pride and for my lying and stealing and cheating. This again and again and again. And yet, Lord, when, when does it run out? And John tells us it's not just grace. Because maybe we would make the argument that at some point it would run out. But it's not just grace. It's grace that when that grace runs out, is replaced by more grace. Your sin cannot outpace God's grace. It's lavished upon us, heaped upon us, over and over and over again. Despite our sinfulness, because of our sinfulness, God is the God of grace. Amen? There's one more verse, though. It's from the Lord, from the, for the law, excuse me, for the law, verse 17, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I've said a couple times as we've we've gone through the Advent season that something something new happens. Not that Jesus is new, not that God is not God of grace before his birth, but now when the word becomes flesh, there's a new level of experience. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We say together as we as we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus, we celebrate the coming of the reality, the experience of the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. So who is this notable person? It's Jesus. I said last week, when when John in verse 12, he says, and he gave the right to become children of God. I said, that's John's mic drop moment, right? Boom, the children of God. Oh, yeah. I was wrong. It's not there. Because 17 verses go by before we hear the name Jesus. John calls him the word. He calls him the light. He calls him life. He calls him him the, the bringer of life. It's like a 
a techno song, right? The, the, the mic, the, not the mic drop, the, the bass line, the bass, what is it? The bass drop? Beat drop, thank you. It's go, building and building and building. You're like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I've said a bunch of times that we read the Gospel of John because we know the end. Jesus is the one who brings grace and truth through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, his defeating of death. And for those of us who believe in his name, for those of us who believe in his word, he gives the right to become children of God. Who is this notable person? It's Jesus. Great and wonderful God in heaven. We thank you that you are the God of grace. Again and again and again, Lord, we fall short. And again and again and again, Lord, you graciously give us your Son. The gift that we do not deserve. We cannot buy. And we cannot pay. Thank you that he is the perfect representation of who you are. We praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. Because of Christ Jesus. And because of who you are. It's in his precious and wonderful.